Good morning, Christ Church. If you're watching this this morning, that means that it is Sunday, April 19th, 2020. I'm so thankful to be able to come to you from our Bartlett campus as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, this foundational book that is so important to everything that we believe about the Bible and the plan of redemption. Uh, and I want to thank everybody from, from last week. We, we've got so much uh, wonderful feedback as Resurrection Sunday was a, was a huge success. I know it was different. Um, I know that it wasn't quite what we were hoping for, um, not being able to come together and gather as a church family. But I've heard some great testimonies that many of you were able to just really experience the presence of God in your homes, worshiping with your family. And so uh, we're so thankful for everybody that made that happen last week as we continue to celebrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to jump into an interesting, a fascinating, uh, and really, to be honest, a controversial passage of Scripture, which is Genesis chapter 6. And so Genesis chapter 6, you, you don't have to begin reading very far into the chapter to discover that there are some strange things happening in Genesis chapter 6. And so I've titled the, this first message, Stranger Things Part 1. Uh, we're going we're gonna to really dig in to see what the, the Bible says about what's happening in this um, chapter. And then next week we'll get into part 2 of this Stranger Things um, passage and really try to break down what's happening here uh, from a biblical perspective to really interpret this passage correctly. And so, you know, one of the things that, that happens in, um, in, in circles of Christian circles and Bible studies and in pastors and, and things like that is, it's, is that oftentimes we, we try to ignore some of the, the more difficult and controversial passages of Scripture, or we just kind of try to explain them away, and we don't really want to have to deal and wrestle with them. And, and, and that's, that's what I don't want to do. I, I want to be able to allow you to, to wrestle with some of these difficult passages and really, I'm going to put it to you this way. I don't want to protect people from their Bibles. Some, there are some things in the Bible that are just kind of difficult. They're just uncomfortable. They're, they're tough. And so, you know, that's the Word of God. And so we don't need to just overlook them or try to ignore them. And so in order for me to, to take you through this passage of Scripture, my goal is to do this gradually, to allow you to process some of this information kind of one step at a time. So I don't want to just kind of try to throw everything at you at once to overwhelm you, but I just want to take you through some logical progressive steps that I think will help us interpret this book correctly. Now, when we think about stranger things in the Bible, it's been, it's been said that the Bible is a supernatural book, and it explains supernatural phenomena and events, and it, it deals with supernatural forces that are at work that we really can't understand unless we have a supernatural worldview because ultimately our God is a supernatural God. And so everything in the Bible just simply can't be explained and understood and embraced with a strictly rational mindset. There are things that call us beyond reason, uh, not in contradiction to reason, if the supernatural worldview is in view, uh, but just to, to, to take us beyond reason sometimes where our rational minds don't always comprehend and understand. And so as I take you th through some of these important steps to, to interpret Genesis chapter 6, I want to just give you a, a really good biblical handle on how I interpret this passage of Scripture and how I'm going to teach it and explain it 
to you this morning. And so what I want you to do, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 6. And we're just going to read the, you know, the first you know, half of this uh, chapter together just to set the context. I want to read this passage just simply um, as, it is, uh, as it is written. And let's just see what the Bible says, okay? So let's set the context. Let's read the passage together as we think about these strange things that are brewing in Genesis chapter 6. So here we are, verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, or on, on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Verse 3. And then, okay, in response to this event, in verses 1 and 2, then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So already in the first four verses of Genesis 6, something strange is happening. The sons of God, the daughters of men, and these Nephilim, and we'll get into more about who they are in just a moment. But as we continue reading in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw, so in connection to what just happened in the first four verses, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so the generations of Noah, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So there's a sense of absolute corruption happening here in the days before the flood. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so that's that's the first 13 verses in Genesis. And as you can see, that there's just a lot happening here. And, and really what's important is that we need to, to have a good understanding of who the players are in Genesis chapter 6. We need to identify who they are because determining and depending on how we identify the players in Genesis 6 will determine how we interpret the rest of this passage. Really, it'll determine how we interpret much of the Bible. And so I want to do a very good job first setting the stage, taking a simple step in the direction of, okay, who are the players involved in Genesis chapter 6? And so there's there's really three primary players. Now, we know the Lord God is always the ultimate player involved. He's always the primary one who is at work, whether it be what we read in the Scripture or what's happening in our life today. God is always the primary player involved, so I would never discount him. But then I want to get down to these three other primary players. We'll, we'll save Noah for later because we'll get into his life and testimony in a few weeks. But there's three primary players in this passage of Scripture and those are the sons of God, so we need to identify who they are. It's the daughters of man, or the daughters of mankind. We need to do a good job identifying who are the daughters of man. 
And then it's this group called the Nephilim. And so these are the players, and, and we want to we try to get a good uh, sound interpretation. And once we identify who these players are, it's going to really inform us in how to interpret what's happening here in Genesis chapter 6. So now there's two basic um, interpretive approaches to this passage, and two, two primary. There's some other alternative views out there, but I just want to share with you the two major interpretive passages of this, pa- of this scripture um, because I, I'm going to compare and con- contrast them and tell you where I stand and, and why. Now, the first is called the Sethite view of interpretation. And let me just try to give you a good uh, understanding of what this is. If you open a study Bible, and you may turn to a commentary in Genesis 6, and you're going to read something along these lines that, that teaches a view that when the Bible says in Genesis 6 that the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives... This view is going to um, propose that the sons of God are no more than godly human offspring in the lineage of the person of Seth. And so in other words, Seth and his godly offspring in this view are the sons of God. And then this view also proposes that the daughters of man okay, are wicked women. They're, they're, they're the, the women who are the descendants of Cain, who we know is who murdered his brother Abel. And so that's where the contrast is is laid out in the Sethite view. You have the sons of God, according to this view, that are nothing more than human descendants of Seth, and they're godly offspring. And then you have the daughters of men in this view that are the descendants of Cain. And so this whole view really teaches that there was a failure in the days of Noah. There was a failure before the flood for the faithful lines of Seth um, to keep separate from the worldly or the wicked line of Cain. And so basically according to the Sethite view of interpretation, what you have here is you've got good good guys, you know, the descendants of Seth, they're godly, they're faithful. And then you've got the bad guys, you've got the wicked women uh, who are descendants of Cain. And somewhere along the way, the, the godly descendants of Seth, they just they just had a poor taste in women. They They fell for the bad girls. And they went off chasing after wicked women, and because of this... Uh, this forsaken union with these ungodly women, then, then they produced children who basically ruined the earth, and, and that's why God sent the flood, because of what they had done. And so that's, that's at the very basic foundation. That's what this Sethite view teaches. Now, I'm going to give you um, some reasons, and I'm just going to go come out and say it, why, why I reject, why I don't believe this view really stands up to scrutiny. And I'm going to give you some, some really good reasons as to why I do not accept this Sethite view. Now the first thing I see is that the Sethite view basically strips all the supernatural out of this text. Uh, in other words, the Sethite view is, a, is a, an attempt to explain Genesis 6 in a purely human, rational, ordinary, natural way. Um, this view really did not uh, emerge until about the 4th or 5th century uh, during the time of Augustine, and he introduced it and was adopted into the Catholic Church, and, and that was really perpetuated throughout uh, the, the generations throughout the church, uh, where the Sethite view really took hold and, and was the, the, the predominant view uh, throughout church history. Like I said today, even up until today, most commentaries are going to propose that what was happening here in Genesis 6 was nothing supernatural. It was just a very ordinary uh, forbidden union between these human men, the godly offspring of Seth, and these human women, 
the descendants of Cain and that they produced these Nephilim somehow and so that, that's where they're going to basically stand when it comes to this but it strips the supernatural completely away from the text and that's one, one of my first problems is that you know it, it's a it's obviously an alternative explanation to not have to deal with the the clear supernatural element of Genesis chapter 6 but there's other reasons why I reject uh, the Sethite view the first is that the Bible just simply does not say anything in the text about the sons of God being the descendants of Seth the Bible does not say anything in the text, or in any other text uh, for that matter, that the daughters of mankind were the daughters of Cain. And so that's the first reason I completely reject this view, is simply because the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not say that. And so you, you're hard-pressed to find anything in the Scripture that correlates the sons of Seth, or the descendants of Seth, with the sons of God. It's just not there. And the daughters of man are not the daughters of Cain. The Bible does not say that. So you can see already this is a view that's been imposed, a, a, a man-made tradition, alternative view that's been imposed on the text instead of allowing the text to um, inform us how to interpret accurately. And so that's the first reason I reject it. The second reason is that you have to understand that if the sons of God are the good guys, that if they're the godly offspring of, of Seth, then basically their actions, by taking wicked women as their wives, their actions are the origin, they're the explanation for the wickedness and the evil in the world. So basically the good guys are at fault for creating a world of wickedness and evil to the point where God was grieved and ended up destroying the whole earth. And so it doesn't really make sense to me how we're to blame the good guys, the godly offspring of Seth, if they are the sons of God, we're blaming them for bringing all this evil and wickedness into the world which eventually led to a global flood. That does not line up with Scripture. The third reason I don't uh, believe in the Sethite view is because nothing in Genesis um, prohibits marriage between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. By all means or, or for, for any matter uh, of interpretation, uh, they could have been intermarrying all along and, and there's really no um, nothing in the text itself that prohibits marriage between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. So there, there was no law against it, and, and as far as we know, they were never instructed not to do this. And so there could have been intermarriage. There could have been crossover in marriage because at, the, at this time on the earth, it, mankind was mankind. Humans were, were humans, and they were marrying with each other. And, and so nothing in the Bible says that there was something wrong with the descendants of Seth marrying into uh, the lineage of Cain. Okay, so that's another reason I, I reject this. The, the next reason is because this text implies that, that the women, the daughters of man, really had little say in the matter. And so if we, we're going to get more into this later, but you see in this text that it says the sons of God took wives as many as they chose. He, they took them, and, and there's an implication, they forcibly took these women as their wives. And so it really looks like the women did not have much of a say in this matter and so that how could godly good men um you know the offspring of seth that doesn't make sense that they that's outside of their nature to go and just begin taking women uh, all that they chose without really giving them any type of a say and so uh, even the mention that that they were attractive that the daughters of man were attractive to uh, the sons of seth if these, if these sons of god were just near mere uh, human beings why, why would they need to be uh, 
uniquely and especially attracted to the daughters of Cain. And so again, there's just so many little clues in, in this context that, that really gives me some hesitancy to believe anything about this view of, of the Sethite uh, from the Sethite perspective. Let me give you a few more. Uh, if the line of Seth was so godly and faithful, why did they perish in the flood? We know only eight people were saved in the flood, so the rest of the descendants of Seth, they died in the flood. So why would God allow them, if they were so godly and faithful, to perish in the flood with the rest of the world? Also, the Sethite view cannot provide any explanation for the origin of the Nephilim. And we're going to see here in just a minute, the Nephilim simply means giants. And so these were hybrid giant beings. Um, they were not fully human. Uh, and we're going to see, uh, we're going to investigate this a lot more next week as we get into our part two of this Stranger Things series. But you're going to see that if these are just ordinary men, the offspring of Seth, and ordinary women, how do you explain their union to produce these Nephilim on the earth of those days? It doesn't make any sense. And finally, the reason I reject the Sethite view is because the ancient Jewish sources, such as the Septuagint, uh, that's the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and books like First Enoch, and the Book of Giants, and other books, uh, and the New Testament authors themselves, okay, all of these other testimonies, uh, in addition to what we read in Genesis chapter 6, they all uphold and support a supernatural view of this passage. And none of them, even almost the, the overwhelming majority of our early church fathers who commentated on all of Scripture, none of them pr proposed any type of a Sethite view from this passage of Scripture. They all supported and affirmed a supernatural view of this passage of Scripture. And so this, this Sethite view, for so many reasons, and I could give you even more, but ultimately it just does not stand up to scrutiny. So what's the only other alternative of, as far as how to explain what's happening right here in Genesis chapter 6? And that's it's a supernatural view. And so what, what is our supernatural view of Genesis 6? Well, it simply says this, that the sons of God are angelic beings. So these are heavenly beings. These are, these are spiritual beings, and they rebelled against God in like fashion as, as we see the serpent rebelling against God who, who manifested himself to Adam and Eve in the garden. But these are also sons of God, angelic beings, heavenly beings who rebelled against God. They transgressed against God. It's a divine transgression. They left heaven. They came to earth. They introduced all kinds of evil with the intention to destroy all of mankind. And so that is really ultimately what's happening here is the supernatural view. And as we identify the sons of God, I reject the notion that these are ordinary men or, or any descendants of Seth. The Bible does not teach that. But the Bible does teach that sons of God, that term, the B'nai Ha'elohim, that they are, from an Old Testament perspective, they are always referred to as angels or holy ones or sons of the Most High. These are heavenly beings. These are not mere ordinary human beings. And so the Bible speaks, uh, and, and, I, and I spent a, an entire lesson on this when, when I taught about the sons of God and the divine counsel, and you can go back and watch that. It'd be very informative for, for this lesson as well. But I don't have time to get into that, but I do want to give you some 
very good Old, Te Old Testament examples about how the, the scriptures um, refer to this group called the sons of God. And this is why I believe that there is a supernatural view um, to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read a, a, a couple of passages here to, to confirm this. In Job chapter 2, actually Job 1 and 2, refer to the sons of God. Listen to what it says. Again, this is Job 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim, they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, we know the context of this passage. This is a divine council scene. This is a heavenly throne room scene. This is what's happening behind the scenes as Satan is about to bring so much catastrophe into Job's life. It says the sons of God, these are not humans. These are angelic beings. These are heavenly beings. They presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also presented himself with them. Again, in the book of Job, chapter 38. It says, speaking, the Lord speaking to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then this is what the Lord says. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, what, what the Lord is saying is these morning stars, these holy ones, these princes, these divine princes, the, these angelic beings, they are called the sons of God. And they were singing and shouting for joy and praising God as witnesses to his creative power um, all the way back in the beginning of creation. And so we see that the sons of God, especially in the Old Testament, always refers to angelic beings. Let me give you a few more. Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. This is God's judgment on the sons of God. He, he's pronouncing a judgment. And listen to what he says. He said, you are God's Elohim, sons of the Most High. So he's talking to the sons of the Most High, and he says, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so God is pronouncing a judgment on the sons of the Most High, the sons of God. And he's saying, because of your wickedness and your, and your injustice in humanity and mankind, you're going to die. You're going to suffer judgment, which is interesting because we see a lot of that happening here in Genesis chapter 6. And so I could go on and on. Psalm 89 uh, also uh, talks about the, uh, the holy ones in heaven, the assembly of the holy ones and the sons of God there in that passage of Scripture. But as you can see, the Old Testament is uh, full of references that, that talk about the sons of God as being angelic beings. These are not human beings. These are not ordinary humans. These are heavenly spiritual beings. Now, what about the New Testament? I, I will say this. The New Testament exclusively talks about the sons of God as being people who have trusted in Jesus, have been born from above, have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, have received the divine nature of God, and they have been called the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what does that tell us? Well, the term son of God or sons of God, it, it implies a direct creation from God. And so when we're born again, we are, we are supernaturally reborn directly made in the image of God, recreated, reborn, regenerated to be his children. And so that's what it talks about in the New Testament. And I'm going to show you a little bit later how Jesus himself even affirms that the angels in Genesis 6 are indeed the sons of God. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And so what we see here is this divine transgression. So we saw the, the serpent who, who rebelled against 
um, the Lord and, and brought death and destruction into the human race and into all mankind. And we saw his act and his act of rebellion and how catastrophic it was. And now we see the second wave of divine transgression as these sons of God, they, they, they leave their proper place in heaven and come down to introduce all kinds of evil, ultimately to destroy mankind. And so you, again, you see that seed war that's taking place, that, that these sons of God are following in the path of Satan. They're following in the footsteps of bringing death and destruction and, and sowing seeds of evil in the world. And so that's exactly what's happening here from a supernatural perspective. Now, when we also talk about the daughters of man, that, that really literally means the daughters of Adam. So these are just human women. There's nothing special about them. They're, they're not the daughters of Cain. They weren't particularly wicked. There was nothing particularly wicked about these women. They were just human women. That's what it means, the daughters of mankind. And so that's who they are in Genesis 6. And there's really, uh, that's really the basic way to interpret it. And then the, the third player in this whole thing, when we identify the players is that you have the Nephilim. And as I said, next week we're going to get into you know, living color about who these Nephilim are and uh, what they were doing before the flood and what they were doing even after the flood and their role and significance in the biblical story. But ultimately, just to, just to keep it simple, the Nephilim, uh, from a biblical perspective, these are hybrid, a hybrid race of giants. Uh, these, are, these are wicked entities. These are wicked beings that are evil. They're the product of, um, of evil uh, actions on, on behalf of the sons of God who took the daughters of men, and they are, the, they are the, the byproduct. They are what was produced out of this forbidden union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so those are the third player here in this passage of Scripture. So correctly identifying the players involved is going to determine how you interpret this passage and really what it means and what was really happening here in the days of Noah. Now, let's move on to step number two. Step number two is so important. We have got to allow this passage, really any passage, but we've got to let Genesis 6 simply say what it means and let it mean what it says, okay? We've got to let the Bible just say what it means and we have to let it mean what it says. So when I read Genesis 6, we, we read it just a few minutes ago, but this is what I read, and this is what it says, and this is what it means. And again, I'm doing my best not to impose my bringing my beliefs from the outside into the text or trying to insert something into the text. I'm just going to let the text say what it means and mean what it says, and this is what we get. So we've got a contrast here. There's a contrast between divine beings, heavenly beings, and human women. And there's a, there's a, a unique and distinct contrast being made between these two groups of people. Okay, so you've got one heavenly, divine sons of God. You've got one earthly group of uh, human women and human uh, of mankind represented here. So there's this contrast being created here in Genesis chapter 6. So these angelic beings are motivated. It says they, they looked upon the daughters of mankind and they found them very attractive. So automatically we're, we're beginning to wonder, wow, what's that all about? Why, why would angelic beings find human women attractive? Well... You're going to see later there's a sexual component to this entire story. And it's very critical that we understand that because you're going to see, as we look at some of the other New Testament passages about this event, that there's something, there's a lust, there's a forbidden lust that is a major component to this story. But that's what it says. It says they found the daughters of man attractive. So, so there's a sexual attraction here 
in this passage of Scripture. Then we see that they, they rebelled. So these sons of God, they, they left their proper place in heaven and they came down to introduce all forms of evil on the earth. They forcibly took human wives for themselves. And again, the, the text is very clear is that they took wives of whom they chose. They, they took any that they chose. And so this seems to be a non-consensual union. This doesn't seem that the women, the, the, the daughters of mankind, had much of a say in this uh, forbidden union. And so these sons of God apparently had the power and the desire to just basically take human women for, for themselves to use them for evil purposes. And that's really what's at the heart of what's happening here in this passage of Scripture. Um, we've got uh, the Nephilim, who again are, are the byproduct, and they're, they're the, the offspring of this forbidden union. And so again, we'll get more into that later. And then here's something I want you to really see, that there's great wickedness all of the evil in the world and the worldwide wickedness that we see that this that is all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So everything on the earth had been corrupted. Everything on the earth was wicked, rebellious. There's so much evil saturation in the world in those days before the flood. And that is directly connected to what was happening in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Don't miss that. We, we oftentimes stop reading after verse 4 and we forget to read on to verses 5 through 13 because the violence and the wickedness and the evil and, and how God was grieved that He had made man on the earth, how everything had become so corrupt, that's, a directly, that's directly connected to what was happening with the sons of God and the daughters of men and the giants, the Nephilim who were on the earth in those days. And so that gives us a better explanation when we read the text as to what was really happening here in the days of Noah. And so we just have to let the Bible say what it means let it mean what it says. And then the next step is that if you're willing to be open-minded and say, okay, maybe these sons of God, maybe they are heavenly beings. Um, you know, maybe there was something forbidden happening here in the days of Noah. Maybe they did take these human wives and, and do something forbidden with them. Uh, maybe there were giants on the earth in those days. And you, you keep this open mind that, that there's a supernatural... Um, perspective to Genesis chapter 6, then the next step really is just to embrace that and say, okay, I don't understand it. It may even make me feel uncomfortable, but no matter how strange or uncomfortable this may be to you, especially if you're hearing this for the very first time, I need you to really just pray and say, God, you know, this is, this is difficult. This is a tough passage to, to wrestle with, but I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to accept it and believe it because I do see that that's what the Bible simply teaches and simply says. And so this is part of the next step is that we, the only way to really preserve the integrity of this text is to embrace this supernatural view of Genesis chapter 6. Now here's, here's where I want to just I want to challenge you just a little bit. Because for some reason Genesis 6, again, is one of the most difficult passages for people to embrace when it comes to a supernatural view, a supernatural interpretation. And I don't really understand that, and I'm going to tell you why. Because when we read the Bible, we, we, we read things about the serpent in the garden, this divine being who is an angel of light and who deceives mankind and brings death into the world and, and, and deceives man, leading him into spiritual sin and ruin. We accept that like it's no big deal. We, we accept things like Enoch being translated into heaven. 365 years old, he walked with God, and then he was taken. Well, that's a supernatural event, but we seem to accept that. We, we seem to accept, accept things like 
the children of Israel and the plagues being poured out on Egypt and, and the Israelites passing through the depths of the Red Sea on dry ground and being saved and delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. That's a supernatural event. We accept that. We accept the, the Lord coming down in flaming fire and earthquakes on Mount Sinai and, and showing Himself to the people of Israel and, and His glory, uh, bringing them to fear Him in His glory. We accept that. We accept Elijah being carried up on the whirlwind on chariots of fire into heaven like, like, like it's no big deal. Uh, we accept that the Virgin Mary was conceived. She conceived of the Holy Spirit and gave birth to the Son of God without having known a man, humanly speaking. We accept that like, it, like it's supposed to be you know, uh, um, not that big of a deal, but that's, that's a huge supernatural event. I don't understand the, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Jesus fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He raised people from the dead. He performed miracles. Jesus, His own resurrection, uh, one of the most supernatural events in human history. We accept that. We don't really question those things. But for some reason, when it comes to Genesis 6, we just have a really hard time accepting and embracing that this is a supernatural event. That there, there are some very strange, very bizarre, very uncomfortable things happening, but they are supernatural and it's what the Bible teaches, and we really need to learn to embrace it. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what, what really rubs people the wrong way when it comes to, to Genesis 6. I think that it's probably this whole notion that, that angels um, are having some type of a sexual relations or sexual reproduction with human women. I think that's just, that's just way out there. Let's just be honest. It's, it's bizarre. But that's what the Bible teaches. And you're going to see here in just a minute that that's what the, really the, the testimony of, of the New Testament affirms. And so, you know, we have to be willing to be open-minded and embrace these things. Maybe it's the giants. Maybe we were just very uncomfortable with this idea that, that there were massive giants on the earth in those days. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the Yeti or the abominable snowman or Bigfoot or, or aliens. It's, you know, we kind of think about those things as being fringe popper out here in, in the science fiction world and so when we start talking about giants it just kind of it just is a, it's very repulsive to us and, and, and kind of offends us and and we just don't want to really embrace that kind of thing because it, it, we think that we may sound sound you know kind of crazy to be honest and so but what does the Bible say the Bible says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also after that who were the Nephilim they were giants and so I'm not sure where this uh, you know this real struggle comes in with, with resisting a supernatural view of Genesis 6, but ultimately I'm just going to really lovingly encourage you just to keep an open mind, let the Bible say what it says and mean what it means, and eventually just embrace that this is exactly what's happening in Genesis chapter 6. And you'll see in just a minute that if you're willing to embrace it, you're going to see the whole Bible story is going to open up to you in ways that it never did before, which leads me to my fourth step. Now let's let the Bible interpret the Bible before we go to outside sources. So let the Bible interpret the Bible before going outside the Bible. And the reason that I say that is very important. Because many of you know I've mentioned the book of Enoch, the, the book of First Enoch, it's called, uh, also known as the book of Enoch. And, and it's a, a, a pseudepigraphical book, so it's, it's a, an apocryphal book. You know, it's extra biblical. That, that means that it's not universally accepted as Scripture. And so I don't, I don't, I don't want to stand here today and tell you that the book of Enoch is inspired scripture, okay? And, but the other thing that I want you to, to know is that even though the book of Enoch does fill in a lot of the 
um, blanks about what was happening in the days of Noah just prior to the flood. And, and it does provide some very interesting commentary and details that, that help us get a better context for what was happening in the days of Noah. Here's the thing, I don't formulate my theology, and I certainly don't formulate how I interpret Genesis 6 on the book of Enoch, because it, it fits into that category that's outside of Scripture, but I want to let the Bible interpret the Bible, and what you may be surprised to find out is that the Bible is so very clear that there are many other passages in Scripture that uphold and support this supernatural view of Genesis 6, that there was something strange happening, that the sons of God were indeed heavenly spiritual beings, and they did something so profane, so they, 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 they had such a severe uh, forbidden sin take place in the days of Noah that they were punished. They were, they were severely punished by God. Uh, and, and we're going to see more about that here in just a minute. But let's, let's just take a minute to look at what the Bible does say. So, so taking the book of Enoch aside, which is, is an interesting read, and, and I encourage you to go and read it, but let's, let, let's see what the Bible says in and of itself. So here's the number one question that I usually get when, when, I, when I teach that Genesis 6 is a supernatural event, that, that Genesis 6 and the sons of God are angelic beings. Well, the first objection I get is, well, well can angels even marry? I mean, I thought the Bible said that angels couldn't marry. Well... What does the Bible really say about angelic beings? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that the Bible describes angels on multiple occasions in many different ways as being able to assume and take on physical form. That's very important. What do I mean by that? Well, when you read different accounts in the Bible, and I'm going to show you some here in just a minute, you see angels who appear in human form. So they, they appear in a human body with flesh. How do I know that they are natural, physical bodies? Is because, well, these angels, they're able to eat and drink. They're able to touch and feel. Uh, in one account here, we'll see in just a minute, Abraham washes the feet of angels as they are in human form. And so they have a very physical, corporeal body, and they can perform various physical actions like eating and drinking and touching and feeling. Okay, so that should tell you right there that angels can take on human form. All right? So let's look at Genesis 18. I'm just going to give you a couple of passages here. Again, this is just prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the angel of the Lord, who is Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, which I believe is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, Okay, he appears to Abraham with two other angels. So there's three men who come to Abraham, and Abraham washes their feet and shows them hospitality. And listen to what it says in verse 8 of Genesis 18, it says, Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared. He set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So the angel of the Lord and these two other angels, they ate a meal. They, they drank. Uh, so obviously they're in some type of physical form. And then if you go on a little bit further in the Sodom and Gomorrah account in Genesis 19, verse 10, it says, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Who are these men? These are the two angels. And we know that if you read the whole, the whole context, the two men are the two angels. And so they reach out, they grab Lot and bring him back inside the house because the men of Sodom are wanting to have these you know, sexual relations with these two angels. And so Lot is trying to prevent them from doing this. And so they know it's to the point where they've got to save Lot 
So they grab him, they pull him in the house. Well, how else are they going to be able to grab him and pull him in the house unless they're in physical form and physical bodies? In the book of Acts chapter 12, listen to what it says about the apostle Peter. Peter is in jail. And in Acts 12 verse 7 it says, And then an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. So here again, an angel taking on physical form. Peter's asleep. He's like, pop! Hey, wake up, Peter. Get up, man. we got to get out of here. How else is he going to hit Peter on the side unless he's in physical form? And of course, you know the passage in the book of Hebrews that says, you know, we should show hospitality to strangers. Because there may be times in doing so that we entertain angels unawares. Well, what should that tell us? There may be times when we show hospitality to strangers, people that we don't know, that they could be an angel in human form. And we could show them hospitality, bring them into our home, feed them a meal, provide them a warm shower, whatever it may be. Some of you may even have testimonies about people that you have helped and, and blessed and served. And then you look back on that saying, you know what, I don't even know if that was a, a human being. That could have been an angel that I encountered that day. And the Lord tells us in His Word that that's possible. So what should that tell us? Sometimes angels can take on physical form and they can look just like regular human beings and perform regular physical functions just like you and me. And so that's very important. But what about this idea of angels having some type of the capacity of having sexual relations or sexually reproducing? Because didn't Jesus say uh, that, that angels didn't marry and couldn't be given in marriage and they, and they could not have uh, sexual relations. Isn't that what Jesus said? Because I, this is probably the number one objection to the supernatural view of Genesis 6. Is they, they point to what Jesus said and they say, you know, Jesus said that angels, they can't do that. And so that proves that Genesis 6 can't be talking about supernatural beings, angelic beings. But let's read what Jesus really said. And I'm going to read from Luke 20 and Matthew 22. Because both of these passages are parallel passages and they tell us what the Bible says and what Jesus really taught about this idea that can angels marry or be given in marriage. And what you're going to be surprised to find out is that just the opposite is true. Not only does Jesus not um, restrict the angelic view of Genesis 6, he actually supports it. If you don't believe me, listen to what it says in Luke 20. Luke 20, verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So who's he talking about? He's talking about humans. Humans in, in this present age, we're bound in our physical body, so we have to marry and be given in marriage in order to keep you know, procreating and keep the human race alive. We've got to get married and have children. That's, that's basically what he's saying. He says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, in other words, the age to come, and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Interesting. So Jesus is saying, right now we have to marry and procreate and sexually reproduce because we die. And so therefore we have to have children to keep the race alive. But he said those who obtain the resurrection and the age to come, we don't have any need or capacity or need for the capacity to marry and have children because we won't die anymore. We're immortal at that point. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 20. Listen to what he says in verse 35. So we, um, it says, For they cannot die anymore, verse 36, because they are equal to angels 
and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now think about what Jesus just said. He said, when we obtain our resurrected bodies, that we will be equal to, we will be just like who? The sons of God. The angels. Jesus calls the angels the sons of God. So we know in Genesis 6, who are we talking about? Who, who, is, who are the primary players in Genesis 6? These are sons of God. Now, they're rebellious sons of God, but they're spiritual beings. They were once in good standing with God. They were once angels in the presence of God, serving God. But at some point, they made a decision to rebel and they transgressed. And therefore, they left their proper estate in heaven. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He said, hey, when we have our resurrected bodies, we're going to be just like the angels. We're not going to have any need to reproduce sexually because we'll live forever. We won't die anymore. We'll be immortal like the angels who are the sons of God. Now, in Matthew 22, Jesus gives us a different perspective, but it's kind of basically the same passage of Scripture when He's talking about the resurrection. But listen to what He says in Matthew chapter 22. Verse 29, excuse me, verse, um, yes, verse 29. He says, You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And I really want to emphasize what he said about the angels being in heaven. This passage of Scripture does not discount Genesis 6 and the angelic view of the sons of God. It actually supports it. And let me tell you why. Because what happened in Genesis 6? The sons of God left heaven. They left their proper estate. They left their proper domain. See, the Lord is telling us that the angels in their proper place of dwelling is in heaven, in the spiritual realm. They're not supposed to cross over here in this earth unless otherwise approved by God. Well, we know that these sons of God, they left their proper estate, which is in heaven, and when they crossed over into this world, taking on human form, is when they performed this forbidden act with the daughters of mankind, and they transgressed and did a, an abominable act in the eyes of God. And so Jesus is actually supporting the Genesis 6 view by saying, hey, the angels are supposed to stay in heaven. That's their proper place. That's where they're immortal. They have no need to reproduce, as he said in Luke 20, because in heaven the angels are immortal. And you, in your resurrected state, you will be like them, and you will have no need to sexually reproduce and procreate. And so Jesus is really teaching and supporting the Genesis 6 supernatural view of the sons of God. I find it very fascinating when people want to use that as an objection against Genesis 6, but when you go back and read what Jesus actually said, it 100% it supports the supernatural view of Genesis 6. Well, what about the rest of the Old Testament? Well, there's three main passages that I want to wrap this whole message up on today. And it comes from 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and the book of Jude. And so this is the main reason why I'm going to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Because these three passages of Scripture all are in agreement that something happened with angels in the days of Noah, some great sin, some great forbidden sin that involved, that involved uh, lust, forbidden lust, and, and a defilement of the flesh, and that these angels are being punished and held right now in chains of gloomy darkness because of what they did in the days of Noah. All three passages that I'm about to share with you 
are describing the same event. And here's the question I want you to answer and ask and answer as I read these passages of Scripture. What Old Testament event, episode, could possibly be in view when we read these three passages? What, what is the only possible candidate for this event in the days of Noah where these angels sinned, they rejected authority, they, they uh, acted on some type of defilement, some type of forbidden lust, and they are being punished right now because of what they did. And you're going to see very quickly what we're talking about here. And you're going to see how Genesis 6 is the only possible candidate, the only one that qualifies for what the New Testament is speaking about here. If you've ever read these passages of Scripture, they probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to you before, but now when you have a supernatural view of Genesis 6, these passages make sense. And that's what I want to share with you. 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, listen to what it says in verse 18. It says, Christ suffered. He also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, so here we have Jesus' death, burial, His resurrection. So in His resurrected state, Jesus apparently went to a, a holding place, some type of prison, and He proclaimed victory over these spirits. Now, who are these spirits? The Bible tells us. Verse 20. So it says, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Who is they? They are the spirits who are being held in prison. And the Bible says they, the spirits, did not obey, formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. There it is. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter is saying that upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus went to this prison, this holding place, and he proclaimed victory over these, these um, rebellious spirits who were being punished. They're being held in chains. Why? Because they did not obey in the days of Noah. Now, what other possible candidate do we have in the Old Testament than Genesis chapter 6 when, when in regards to this passage? There is no other. I don't see any other passage unless these spirits are the, the angels who did not obey in the days of Noah. Now, 2 Peter builds on this. Listen to what he says in chapter 2. Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There you see it again. These angels who sinned, are being held in chains in, in gloomy darkness in a place called hell. It's really, in the Greek, it's Tartarus. It's the bottomless pit. So these angels are being held and punished in a place called Tartarus because of what they did in their sin. And the Bible tells us when this happened. Let's continue to read in 2 Peter 2, verse 5. He says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the un." Godly, and, he, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, extinction, He's making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So now Peter is tying what happened in Genesis 6 to what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a, there's a direct correlation there. He says, And if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul 
over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. So now it's explaining how Lot was tormented from all of the, the, just the immorality that he was around in Sodom and Gomorrah in his day. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to be kept, excuse me, and to keep the righteous under the punishment, excuse me, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now listen to verse 10. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. And so what's Peter saying here? He's saying the same thing that the angels did in Noah's day when they sinned. The same thing that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were doing in Lot's day. It involved these two primary sins. There was a defiling lust. There was, there was an indulgence in sexual immorality and perversion. And we'll see more about that in a second. And there was, there was this despising of authority. So that was the great sin of the angels in the days of Noah and of what was happening in the days of Lot with the men of Sodom. And so they had this, this unnatural desire, this defiling passion and lust um, to commit sexual immorality, and they despised authority. Well, guess what? The book of Jude really ties all of this together. And so the book of Jude, who also quotes from Enoch, uh, in, in verses 15 and 16, he, he speaks directly to this as well. Listen to what Jude has to say. In Jude 1, verse 6, let me read this. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, again, they despise authority. So the angels, who are these angels that did not stay in their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. They abandoned their proper domain. They left their heavenly dwelling, their heavenly domain, and they came to earth. They entered into our domain. That's exactly what Jude is saying right here. He says, He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Same thing that he's talking about in Peter. The same thing that's spoken of in the book of Enoch. That's what's happening here. He's talking about these angels who sinned, who despise authority. They didn't keep their own position of authority. They left their proper dwelling and domain. They crossed over from heaven to earth, and they had this defiling lust, this, this unnatural passion, sexual desire. And I want you to see what Jude says about this. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which like these angels, okay, just like the angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones so there you see Jude and Peter both are talking about this event that happened in the scriptures in the Old Testament where there were angels who abandoned and rejected authority and they left their own proper domain they left heaven they they had this indulgence for a unnatural desire for sexual immorality. That word unnatural desire means they were seeking strange flesh. So here's what, here's what Jude is saying. In the same way that the men of Sodom were committing uh, sexual acts of homosexuality, they were seeking unnatural desire from a homosexual perspective. He's saying that is the same thing that was happening from the perspective of these angelic beings who were seeking uh, sexual relations with human beings. 
That is an unnatural, it, it is a violation of the created order. That's what's happening here. And that's why this transgression in the days of Noah was so severe that these angels who sinned, again, there's only one possible explanation, there's only one possible episode in the Old Testament that, that applies to these passages. That's what was happening in Genesis 6. These angels who sinned, they crossed the line, they did something so terrible that God said, I will not contend with man anymore because he is flesh. And so the whole earth was corrupted because of what they did. And then God cast them into Tartarus and to be held in chains of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. And so you see that the New Testament supports and upholds this view in Genesis 6 that something strange and supernatural was taking place. I encourage you to go read some of the book of Enoch, chapter 7 and 8, really go into great detail about how this is all in agreement about what was really happening in Genesis chapter 6. And you can go read that a little bit more. But it just talks about how these, these watchers, these sons of God, how they introduced all kinds of evil like sorcery and divination and sexual immorality and and taught man how to make weapons of war. And so, so they were really the ones ultimately who were the source and the origin of all the wickedness and evil that was on the earth in those days. But I just need to wrap this up and basically say, okay, if you're embracing the supernatural view of Genesis chapter 6, where does it fit and how does it put all of these puzzle pieces together in the bigger picture of God's story? And it really comes down to what Jesus said in the Gospels. He said, he said this, he said, just like it was in the days of Noah, like it was in the days of Lot, when there was great wickedness in the world, there was a great amount of supernatural activity in the world. There were, there were evil forces at work in the world causing so much wickedness and evil and immorality in those days. And that led to their destruction. That led to the destruction of the ungodly. Jesus said, just as it was in those days, in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, so will it be before the coming of the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you with deepest conviction, I believe we're living in those days. I believe we're living in days of great sexual immorality and great evil and satanic oppression and supernatural forces of evil are at work in our world today. And you think about how so many people despise and reject authority, how people are lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure and who reject sound doctrine and, and who want to just hear what their itching ears are, are, are craving for them to hear. And so we see that we're living in a world today where the world is dangerously heading to this end game, to this endpoint where there will be another judgment. But the Lord said, listen, I promise never to judge the earth in a flood again. But the next time I do, I'm coming with fire. I'm coming more like I did against the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm coming just as true as the flood came in Noah's day. So it's coming in our day. Brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart that we have to stand firm in faith. Are you prepared to be different? Are you prepared to be a Noah in your generation? Are you prepared to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? Are you prepared to be... Um, blameless and holy in your generation? Are you prepared to, to be able to walk in faith and, and represent the Lord Jesus Christ and be separate and set apart from the rest of the world? And to warn other people, Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. He warned his generation about the coming judgment. God, brothers and sisters, that is our responsibility today. And so whatever we do with this passage of Scripture, 
we need to understand that just as serious as it was in the days of Noah that led to the flood and the destruction of the ungodly, so will it be before the coming of the Son of Man. And brothers and sisters, I believe we are there. And so wherever you are today, if, you have, if you're allowing the devil to have influence and, and um, control in your life, if you're allowing sin to have control in your life and to master you, listen, there's never been a greater time for us to confess sin and lay down our pride and lay down our works of unrighteousness and get ourselves right in our own hearts with God so that we can be the witnesses and the representatives of righteousness in this generation because this is life and death. This truly is the eternal destiny of souls that we're talking about. And so I just want to encourage you today to do business with God wherever you may be so that you're prepared to stand and to remain faithful in these last days. Thank you so much for listening. I love you all and I pray that God will continue to send His blessing upon you. May the Lord bless you and keep you, causing His face to shine upon you, to be gracious to you and lift up His countenance upon us and give us peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next time.